Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. Merry Christmas. That is Chris Agnesum, and I'm J. David Osborne. How are you, Chris? David, I am getting in the spirit. I've got my red Christmas sweater on. I'm I got my house lights on. I'm starting to feel a little bit of uh, that kind of cheer that we need at this time. I I really do understand why people freak out uh, beginning with Thanksgiving all the way through New Year's. I get it. I really do. But if you can find the good groove, really savor it and maybe make an effort to block out aspects of this season that just aren't in that good groove. But how are you doing? How how how's the are you on vacation yet? Yes, I am on vacation. I hosted my grades before I left. Most of my students did very well. Five failed. But five's not bad. Yeah, no, yeah. that's not bad. That's kind of five's that. not bad. Um and now I've been wrapping presents. I took Gus to see the light show here in town, which he really enjoyed, of course. And I've been learning how to reuse the internet. As you know, we've all been thrust into the social media ghettos, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and a curated algorithm feeds us what we see. And sometimes we will see things that are interesting. I watched a lot of TikToks today, for example, about crossing the Drake Passage. And I also saw Icelandic volcanoes uh, erupting, people losing their drones to get these great shots up close of the lava. But a lot of times it's face-tuned Instagram thoughts, right? And yeah. um, so... I went back to the old internet and I tried to rediscover this kind of lost explorers approach to it. So I've been using websites like, uh, let me see here. I have been do, 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 do web, uh, wibbly.me and you can click surprise me like you used to be able to do on Google. And the very first site it took me to was truthaboutdinosaurs.org evidence that humans and dinosaurs coexisted the Doheny expedition and it's just this obsessive geocities looking website that documents every piece of evidence this person could find that dinosaurs coexisted with humans i also found a nice tool to make your own dungeon maps if you're a dungeons and dragons guy i found a lot of really cool art um and it's it just feels like i'm out in the wild finding strange corners of the internet again and it's pretty exciting to be honest with you uh it's nice to not have everything curated and thrust in your face i you know i really really enjoyed that and i i know exactly what you're saying i share that uh proclivity or affliction if you want to take it you know that way but it did strike me just for a moment because 
we're always about spiral, not just lateral thinking, that another way to consider this is as a kind of hoarding behavior. And I, mm. I have occasionally thought of that myself because, you know, pre-internet, I mean, it was everything had to be kind of physical and i lived in you know by choice in what looked like an exploded library or giant cabinet of curiosities and mm -hmm. i still sort of do that's my kind of design style that's my sort of deal and yet there is an aspect of hoarding because i've had to print out a massive amount of, of research material and I've got sort of three books going. So I, I think what you're talking about is one way to look at the miracle of the digital revolution and the rise of the internet. And the other way is to think of it as a real pathology. I like both. I, I feel like we, you can't have one without the other. And mm. I also think that... <laughs> If, you know, it's this idea of are you using your tools or are your tools using you? And for the past 12 years now, at least, the tools have been using us. Everybody and their mother knows the phrase that if you're not being sold a product, you are the product. And we know that and carry on. Just as usual, let's see what Facebook has to show me today. In my case, it's let's see what Instagram or TikTok has to show me. And I thought, you know what? I want to just go out there and look, you know? And I think I've been really, I know we're both uh, locked in right now creatively. I started a new novel. Um, I've been working on a on a project with some people that I'm really excited about. You and I are getting our projects ramped back up in the new year and I think that, you know, my friend Jay Springett, who listens to the show, shout out to Jay, he says, um, you should, you're either, uh, what is it? You're either a poster or a consumer, right? And I want to be more of a poster. I want to emanate creativity and ideas and do less of the, you know, seeing what other people think about things. I've seen what other people think about things. And I have been left wanting. Yeah, look, I think it's uh, I think it's more serious than that. I I really do as part of the memory and alertness book, which and my new working title. I love this. This is simpler. The near distance. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. I I, Ooh. I thank Ooh. you. I I'm feeling kind of good about that at the moment. But I think the kind of internet surfing that you're talking about is uh, absolutely addictive and really is a pathology of mind. Now, I'm as you said, I it, you can't have one without the other, the other being benefit and perhaps amazing, bizarre new doors opening, sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there does have to be a management process of that, some kind of harmonic balance because it absolutely scrambles brain function. And when I say brain, I don't mean like the brain that Richard Dawkins is talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean something else, something more interesting. And I think, you know, this is what you and I have been talking about. So um, awesome.
Very cool. Very cool. Do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? Okay. I do have a band and um, they're called, well, I'll give you the backstory. They were originally called gain of function and they were pretty straight line, neo new wave, uh, a group that sort of dropped out of the Rhode Island school of design like Talking Heads and, and that whole sort of flavor back in the 80s. But they're the updated, really sort of edgy, snarky version of that. And then they had an accident, and one of them really had some major uh, head trauma and brain dysfunction and language dysfunction. And... They got involved in ways to relanguageize this band member. And they hit on the idea of live performances where they would get studio audiences in, some of them armed with just noisemakers, some given actual musical instruments, some given various synthesizers or megaphones, a whole range of noise-making possibilities. And then the band, who call themselves Villains Whispering, would produce on stage very large cue cards, like they did in the old days of live TV, like applause. Only these come from the captions in movies and TV shows. Mm. For instance, romantic music surges, indistinct chattering. I love indistinct chattering. Grunts of disgust. General animal sounds. And beautiful woman farts. So these kind of instructions would be offered to live audiences. And then the recordings would be based on their responses. Live music based on absolutely random, strange instructions peeled from the media monster in text form. I like that. I like uh, a friend of mine who runs a podcast called Rare Candy started a book club and they managed to read a book every other week this year. And they became a popular podcast by talking about COVID during the COVID era. Mm -hmm. And so their, their book club is called Gain of Fiction. <laughs> nice. Which I thought was good. That's they're, very they're good. Nice. They're good with the titles and your aphorism for today. Okay. Be on good terms with anything bigger than you are, anything more intricate or anything less stable. I like that. That's just solid life advice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, Always need those reminders, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As for my imaginative challenge. Okay. Well, last year's Mayhem in the Manger, 
the three wise men, one of them is a Terminator character. Mm -hmm. And I think we see the scenario. And David did a wonderful blockbuster action gore uh, version of that. Um, earlier, I believe we have visited the attack of the killer black Santas. Have we not? Does that ring a bell? It does ring a bell, yes. Okay. And the idea there, this goes back to Christmases now, uh, a company that makes robotic Santa Claus figures, there is a conspiracy to hack into uh, the black Santas and trigger a homicidal rage carnival of blood at holiday time with the intent of triggering a race war. <laughs> and David did a marvelous job. I haven't revisited that, but I'm going to, as we near, near get near Christmas itself. But I thought we would revisit this idea in light of the obsession now with AI. Mm -hmm. And the kick here is the attack of the killer blank. So we're leaving it to David to <laughs> take a scenario <laughs> where it's a false flag story of sabotage. Uh, rather like uh, a large version of Charles Manson's Helter Skelter plan. Mm -hmm. um, you commit some just grievous, heinous, uh, barbaric crime, which then reflects on a particular identitarian social group of our <laughs> time. And the question is, who will David target and how will he round this off into a cheering and inspiring Christmas message, despite the blood, guts, and terror? Mm, so a false flag in which one particular group is sort of made to look as barbaric as possible with the hopes of inciting some kind of international, perhaps, chaos that's pretty much it in the in the original scenario the uh killer black santas had been sabotaged by a pair of closeted as far as their tech company but very adamant white supremacists real white supremacists mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. very smart white supremacists but maybe that goes without saying maybe that is exactly the point and i think you you got into a really great riff about that while opening up some other channels um, if memory serves but yeah this time the two uh sort of opposing elements uh, the saboteurs and the group they are attempting to uh, bring uh, <laughs> shame and, and distress to. Uh, that that binary is in your capable storytelling hands. All right. <laughs> I like I like that this 
this is uh, a tone that I would like to repeat throughout Lost Explorers, which is just, you know, have you ever heard of the the just asking questions guy? Yeah. The guy who enrages everyone and he goes, I'm just asking questions. Yeah. That's yeah. that's uh that's the kind of tone that we're on recently where it's we're very cheerful. We're not negative at all, but it's also semi-intentional bear poking. And I am uh I'm here for it. I enjoy doing it. What a wonderful title that is. Yeah, yeah. Semi-intentional bear poking. <laughs> um yeah, I mean my other podcast is called Agitator, so it's kind of it's kind of what I do. It's it's what I was born to do. Uh, I uh all right, so your notes for today. Um mystery question. Let's say we're talking about physical dimensional games you might play at home with a small group that are non-computer or electronic. Think Monopoly, Quiddler, Scrabble, Pictionary, Trivial Pursuit, etc., etc. Suppose you give your experiment test group the same pre-game memory diagnostic, which is something special I've developed and am seeking to monetize as a standalone aid or a game of its own. Which type of interactive adult game would you think promotes the highest level of improvement on the second post-game version of the diagnostic. Improvement is the key here. The options are word games, math games, visual design games, trivia games, memory games, invention games, money games, slash treasure hunts, history games, strategy games, or mystery games. Yeah. That is That is an interesting question. So in terms of word games, we're talking word search, hangman, that type of thing. Yeah. Oh, I mean, things or, you know, Scrabble would probably be the Scrabble you know, the yeah. one there. I, right. I before we get into the, the list, which is interesting, I, I tried to keep that down to a manageable 10. I am very excited about this memory diagnostic tool that I've developed and it, it's going to keep developing. But I think what it does is well here's a good way to explain i think what we should all be involved with if if we're thinking intellectually and artistically think about the the questions that you have in a particular field and you look at the answers that are are current in the moment and then you start to think wait a minute you know that just doesn't make sense to me mm -hmm. or the, the composite of them doesn't I see some reason over here. I see some unreason over there. I see some, you know, and then you start to put together a little mosaic of your own. And that alone, I think, is is one of the most important things I've ever been involved with. And I think it's a really great idea that everybody can pursue in some way. It's kind of a giant tool. Mm -hmm. But... So what I was thinking up here is I have been trying to, uh, as, you know, uh, professionally, let's say, as I can, garner some quantitative sense of how my memory listening exercises and some of the things I do in my class 
how those have actually improved thinking, memory, alertness at the by the end of the semester. So I've been working on this for some time. But I wanted to keep the list of game possible games down. But and and some of the major games that are really the commercial hits at any given time obviously blend these sort of elements. But I think that if you if you do uh scour around to see what possible board games are in the mix. And you can go back in time because some there are some great things that have kind of faded away and, and some very new things. But you look at those categories and you think, well, I, I, I thought uh, that there would be some obvious benefits from some of those categories in terms of relatively short term, let's say tactical rather than focusing on the time length, improvement. And I was very surprised. So I wanted to present you with those 10 options and kind of talk through them. If I mean, I'm, I'll happily explain what but let's keep those categories fairly open rather than try to think of a brand name or a specific game if, if unless you really uh, need to. Because I think they're better almost as conceptual categories rather than um, – because like a word game, Quiddler, if you know it, is very different than Scrabble. Mm -hmm. Very different. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Lots of different possibilities. But talk me through – you understand the research idea. Yes. Yes. And you have to accept because I'm not I'm, I am trying to make the the memory diagnostic a proprietary sort of tool. Um, and that's still evolutionary. But except for the moment that it's it's a workable. It's I'm not saying it can't be improved. It's workable, but it's nonetheless an absolute constant within the experiment. So however good or bad it is. Its scale of, of information that it provides is uh, consistent across a group. And mm -hmm. at this point, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of between 200 and 300 people. So I'm, there, there's an, a, a reasonable level of, uh, well, I have a reasonable level of confidence in where the results of this are going. So I wanted to see how you respond to this and how your inferences um, measure up against what mine were. You know, what what was I thinking? Right, right. Um, first thing, the games that would stand out the most to me in terms of memory would be, well, obviously memory, trivia, and history maybe word games too. I think that, however, starting from the top, starting with word games, I would say that that is very, well, they're all obviously memory linked. You have to access memory to play any of these games. I think that in terms of word games, the associative quality would tap into memory really well because we've talked about on the show before how memory is situational it's non-local but it's also completely category dependent 
where you are determines what sort of memories you have. So I think that the associative nature of word games could help with that. Um, trivia and and memory well, trivia is you know and history games are a sort of reaching into the past to try mm-hmm. to to try to call back from that personal akashic record that you have whereas memory games itself seems to me to be much more of a short-term deal correct uh, I, that would be the one uh bit of further information that i i should have provided absolutely that is precisely the difference david you're absolutely mm-hmm. right um and there are many, many in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if I were to think about what would promote the highest level of improvement, well, let me stop you there and come at it from a different way because okay. uh, let me ask you what mm-hmm. you the response was to some of these let's talk about money games and treasure hunts which i've grouped together because i think that's uh well i think treasure and money is obviously linked they are they can be different in structure absolutely very different in structure but nonetheless what would you what's your response to that what what benefit might there be driven why where would you place them on our list of 10? Where would you rank it, I suppose? That's a good way to look at it. For money games and, and treasure hunt? Yeah. Um, I would... It's interesting because a treasure hunt requires a lot of creative thinking putting clues together, following directions, being in place, embodied in place. In terms of money games, there is acquisition, strategy. I'd probably put it lower on the list in terms of memory. Uh, Probably the bottom five. All right. Um, Because I'm you would have to be accessing memory in order to, you know, you'd have to be accessing your past experiences with money Uh, in terms of the treasure hunt. You would be thinking of situations you had been in that had been similar. Uh, You'd be accessing data banks to again, make connections much like the word game, but in terms of direct memory, as in, Oh gosh, see this gets so I mean this is the problem that you're dealing with with this book is that when yes. you talk about memory you're what kind of memory are we exactly. talking about? Which one? Yes. The facts or uh you know there's emotional memory there's uh putting things together you know being able to take memory like puzzle pieces and put them together. Um so yeah, gets tricky. It gets very, very tricky. And I I appreciate that you're seeing that that this is exactly part of, of my process and my journey, that um it's like, you know, those choose your own adventure games where you go into a mansion looking for one thing and then everything starts to melt and change and you think, 
wait a minute, was there a whole team of writers that just shifted? I mean, it's absolutely, you know, it's it's not dreamlike in a way. It's it's very um, just disordered. Um, let's look at visual design games because you and I both uh, have a lot to do with visual design, even though that's not, you know, perhaps our known thing, but we, mm -hmm. we certainly draw a lot of inspiration from it and make, make it part of our regular practice. And I, I'm really, yeah, I, I'm really trying to, uh, you know, be a, a, a money earning artist in that realm. So it's important to me. What do you think about visual design games? And let's take Pictionary as kind of the icon of that. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I first saw visual design games, I didn't think much of it. But the Pictionary example is tying it together for me because there is that need to be able. So that's another interesting form of memory when you're talking about artistic memory. I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos about how to draw because, you mm -hmm. know, this, this is my hobby now. And... There is uh, Kim Young Ji, who passed away this year, but he was this phenomenal, you know, middle 40s young guy who could just draw perspective from memory. He'd have these big whiteboards and he'd be drawing all these figures. And he talked a lot about artistic memory and needing to be able to not look at a reference to call something up. And it was clearly something that he could do that he had just had immediate access to this, almost like it wasn't going back into an archive at all. He was just pulling it out. So I think that when you are tasked with drawing something, you are in that kind of mode where you're pulling things into the present. And it's obviously because of the name, it's very visual based. Um, let me take one quick look here at the list because I'm also stacking them against the other ones. Um, I would put... Hmm, I'd put it, I'd put it above the, the halfway mark. I'd put it about above the halfway mark. And I'll tell you why. I don't want to spoil anything. And I'll go more in depth when we get to these other ones. But I'm thinking that my intuition is telling me that the kind of rote... Uh, sort of memory games and history games are going to be lower than we expect. Uh, trivia games being a bit lower as well. Okay, so visual That's just my intuition. goes into the lower. No, no, it goes into the upper. It's okay, it's sorry. it's All above right. the it's above the waterline. Yeah. Okay, so trivia goes lower. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What about history? I'll go lower. Okay. okay keep it coming uh i would i would put in the top five i would probably i would put visual design okay i would put word games mm -hmm. strategy games okay Strategy games is really interesting too. There's a lot of short-term memory and long-term memory involved in a strategy game. Math game. Okay. 
And then right in the middle. Let's go with mystery. I like mystery games. To finish off our, our top. Yeah. Okay. Our top five. Yeah. That would be my top five. Okay. So we've got still to place. We've got. No, where did you put memory games? You put the no, we yeah, okay. There yeah, the, but we'll, yep. we'll say six. Let's go with six for that. And then I'd put history below that. Oh, this is it. Okay, okay, okay. Uh okay. So what's number one now? See, that's interesting. I was doing a cop out where I was saying a top five, no particular order. I'm gonna go with strategy games at the okay. top okay what's number two word games okay mystery games okay number three mm -hmm. visual design games okay and then math games okay all right. So, and number six is memory. Yep. Seven is history. Mm -hmm. uh, eight. Uh, oh. You know what? Um, let's move money games and treasure hunts to six. And then the other two down. Because treasure hunts are better than memory games and strategy games, I think. Or I'm sorry, and history games. Okay. What did we do with invention? Invention. Was that I neglected? What that category was? Well, I I assumed it was inventing a new uh, a new machine or a new uh, doodad gadget type thing yeah. uh yeah or it could be like inventing a brand or mm -hmm. uh, you know mm -hmm. inventing a slow it, it it's um it's a weird category because i've played a couple of different games and and a couple of them are let's say it is what you're thinking in kind of an right. inventor in that basic product sense a new gadget mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. i would put that that one didn't stand out to me as much okay. and i believe that leaves us with actual trivia games right yes yeah i would put that at the at the bottom because i think that trivia trivia to me is the opposite of robust memory okay man this is so interesting i um I love exploring because we're lost explorers. These ideas in real time with when you haven't had a chance to review really not in the way we just did, you know, mm -hmm. I had sent you mm -hmm. these notes, but you hadn't really had much time to, to look through them and certainly not to, to think about them in quite uh, well, a one through 10 way, you know, Mm -hmm. Well, I think that you have um, done remarkably well there. 
remarkable. Thank you. Um, I, I think there are some some points that um, that may seem obvious, but I'm glad that you mulled over out loud and gave some explanation of how you you saw the order work. Because, I mean, everyone. who I've shown this to at first goes, well, memory games, if you know, it's about memory improvement. And that is of course, a point of view that is uh, very difficult for me to deal with. But I, I realize that's also a very important part of the process and what the, the book and the larger inquiry is about is, is starting with that baseline Mm-hmm. uh, literalization of things. which is absolutely um, counterproductive. And it's, it's about, I think it, um, I think you've got it very well placed there at, at seven. I do. I don't have the exact figures on that, but that is certainly the right weighting. History and trivia are actually disruptive. I think that they, because they fixate on a particular kind of memory, Yeah. which highlights the storage retrieval metaphor that I'm really trying to break down because it's, Mm -hmm. it's, I'm not saying it never has any validity, but it's hegemony in, in our thinking about memory has been so counterproductive. That was And my it's, instinct too. Yeah. and it's absolutely terrible terrible the younger the people are you can get away with it you know literally at the trivia contest level where you see adults maybe sitting around a bar and it's fun and social and it's a new kind of it's boomer bingo you know and that's fine i'm not i'm not saying i don't enjoy it i i i no problem but it, as a way of revealing and investigating and putting to use different kinds of memory mechanics of kind of building a different kind of memory carnival with, you know, some improv improvised machinery and connections. Uh, trivia is, is absolutely correctly placed at the bottom, at the bottom. History I think that history is is somewhat different or but it maybe the way to, to say it is it reveals uh weaknesses of trivia but amplified it amplifies a fact based storage retrieval concept Mm-hmm. Right. because all you're being asked for usually are very very glossed terms you know And it's like, I remember the year 1066, or no, sorry, 1066, of course, the Battle of Hastings. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't have any idea. I know that someone named Harold, I think, got an arrow through the eye. But this is the kind of memory that is absolutely, um, I don't know what the food analogy would be for a bodybuilder, but it's just, it's just glug. It really just clogs Oh, everything. empty calories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, invention is... Uh, 
it's hard to speak to at the moment from from my records because I think it it there aren't enough. Uh, well, I think in this in, in this case, my results hinged on the the nature of the games mm. rather than the nature of the concepts or the skills. I think that there's something more that could be done there. I, I think this was the, the category that I didn't have the best material to work with, and I need to work a bit more on that. Um, money and treasure hunts. I like how you put that down into because you started off no you were you were definite about that from the beginning what made you think about that as being not that helpful from the very get-go because a lot of people would that was their first thing they went to they think well everyone wants money and you you know uh, you know i think that well i'm trying to think of it from the reason why I'm pausing so much is because I'm putting myself in the, you know, treasure hunt money mode and then yeah. seeing what parts of my mind that I would be accessing. And I would have to think about uh, ways that I'd seen treasure hunts go down in the past. And if I was following clues as in a mystery game, I would be putting that together, but it feels a lot more like intuition to me and intuition and memory are definitely linked. They're not opposites at all, but it feels that to me feels more intuitive, kind of like invention and intuition plays a lot into it. When you had mentioned uh, marketing, inventing a brand, there's mm -hmm. a lot of intuition in that intuition can come from this accumulation of lived experience where you know what will work for people, but it's more, um, I hesitate to use the linear timeline because this is lost explorers, but it does feel more forward thinking mm. more more gut based. Um, and I'm beginning as I'm speaking, I'm finding how fraught all these terms are because you can apply them to memory too, but I'm going to, stand on my current thought, which is that uh, memory for as non-local and situation-based as it is, and its connection to intuition, that intuition feels a bit different to me. Okay, okay. There's some interesting feedback from about this particular um, game genre. And Several people ask the question, well, what happens when you look at gambling, like poker? And, I mean, money is very important. You can play for fun, but I think real poker players always say that, you know, they need some some money to make it really. Uh, <laughs> and I, I wasn't prepared to deal with the issues of, of gambling in that sense, even, you know, games of skill that way, because I think they're – it's just another level entirely. And it kind mm -hmm. of, um, it opened the frame too big because I thought there were a lot of other kinds of game, musical games or physical, you know, games, dance games. Mm -hmm. You know, it just becomes too, too much. And I wanted to see if this approach had any validity at, at all. And I think uh, we're demonstrating that it does, but it, it the methodology still um, has kinks. Mm -hmm. But, 
the idea there was that the money game idea best exemplified by monopoly um strangely did not have the uh, expected results that i thought it might um it just did not generate the level of improvement that really would you know be noticeable it didn't really tweak the dial much at mm, all interesting wow so here we have now the five and in your order you had strategy word mystery visual design and math now i think that is a very very remarkable um detective mission that you've been on because here is uh the order and i'm not saying you're wrong in any way because this yeah. is going research but i'm interested yeah to date what we have is mystery at number one strategy at number two visual design at number three word at number four and math at number five i got the top five right just in a different you, order you, you did you really did yeah. and i think that you did a good debrief on six through ten there um what i have gathered myself from this research is that the question of improvement is really really important because there are people starting off with with pretty good facility if you want to use that word uh and i'm not I, that's another word i'm trying to break free of um but the improvement aspect was what i was really focusing on and i think that my understanding of the results so far kind of go like this mystery is something that is accessible to anyone potentially it doesn't conflict with a label of oh you're a word person or oh you're a math person or you're a visual design person you know the other categories have that barrier to for people to transcend whereas mystery if it's it is possible that some people just don't get into it but they were given incentives to all you know try to give each type of game a good shot so maybe a little bit of methodology issue there but i think that mystery is not surprisingly if you look at these in terms of well genres of larger entertainment i mean an ai would just look at those words and go well mystery is the biggest category books you know everything movies tv on and on and on and the other elements are sub uh components of mystery perhaps strategy mm -hmm. strategy yeah. coming in at number two Mm -hmm. And I think that's very interesting. Visual design trumping word and word quite significantly uh, exceeding math. Again, I think we have some labels, some categories, some ways that people think of themselves. And the other part of what I'm thinking the research is pointing to is that if you could break people out of their category boxes and just 
uh, activate a tiny bit more. Say you take a word person and you activate a tiny bit more of their math orientation, you would get, I think, some significant improvement in terms of the kind of memory alertness that I'm investigating. And this is the really crucial thing that I'm I'm seeing is that we've talked about the importance of triangulation, two points, finding a third point from for another perspective, uh, lateral and spiral thinking, breaking out of conventional categories, rearranging Venn diagrams. You know, all these we've used a lot of these different models all based on the principle of small change, mm -hmm. small change, which psychologists, uh, psyops people, I mean, the CIA started talking about that a long time ago. You don't change big cultural things. You change little tiny things first. Yep. And yep. then that ripples out. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the final thing of coming in from oblique angles, that this is really your argument instantly you went to with memory games, trivia, and history that the explicitness of them didn't work for you. You thought, no, that's, yeah. that isn't how things work. You know, right. it just educationally, it's, it's not a, a, it's not a pedagogic strategy. You know, it really isn't. So I think you did a great debrief on these, a great pull apart. And you've given me some encouragement that this kind of technique is um, well worth pursuing, worth, it needs a bit more scaffolding. Uh, I appreciate being able to share it. If listeners have any thoughts about this, I really, we want feedback from anything totally. to dreams to our tools that we mentioned, anything. I like it. I like it. Well, pulling a bit of double duty, as I always do with yeah. the imaginative challenge. But do you want to hear my imaginative challenge? Oh, we're ready to go. Okay, cool. So, <clears throat> I'll tell you some of the other titles that I was working with, but I'm going with Polycule Slaughterhouse. Whoa. Yeah. Do you know what a polycule is? No. A polycule is what they call um, a polyamorous group where there is one woman and a bunch of men. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank yep. you. Um, man in the... No, I was gonna say no. I don't know where our where our man in the shadows. Mm -hmm. So I'm the man in the shadows here. Yes, I'm a I'm the CIA boss flag guy, and I've decided that what we really need at this point because I'm CIA, and CIA at heart, I'm still going with anti-communist. That anti-communist is the CIA position. Um, they've made some changes recently to their look but ultimately their goal is to stop the spread of communism throughout the world and the way that they decide to do that the way that i decide to do that is by having a polycule go berserk taking out uh those drive-through wedding chapels throughout vegas because oh. vegas is the hot spot for false flags right um so i find this polycule the woman at the center of the polycule is an absolutely enormous brendan fraser in the whale uh, woman who has five guys at her command and they wheel her around. I'm picturing this great image of just this great big fat woman with five guys with AK 47s pushing her around. 
Um, basically, we let me follow. I'll show you my notes here and why this is difficult for me to follow. Okay, so uh, they're going to burn down wedding chapels. However, in Vegas at the time is a, a drunken MMA fighter who has fallen in love with a horse girl at Bally's Casino. And they decided to get married. And the first chapel that they pass offers free complimentary cupcakes to anybody who gets married. So they think, screw it. Let's do that one. Let's go there. Why not? Well, right then the polycule hits. But what they don't realize is that both the horse girl and the MMA guy are basically John Wick. And so gunshots are going off. At one point, uh, the MMA guy blows the furry's head off. And we get this great uh, image of the wolf mask falling to the ground with like a brain soup inside of it. Um, there's hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, high-flying action. The whole chapel is burning down. Uh, two of the, of the male members of the polycule admit their love for each other. And they always just kind of wanted to be around each other and that this woman was their, 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 their bonding thing. Um, and finally, like as the big fat woman is rolling herself out of the chapel, <laughs> she almost makes it in time, but she sees those free complimentary cupcakes and can't help herself. She has to go for one. And that's when the roof collapses and takes her out. But my thought process as a CIA guy, right, is that symbolically the polycule <laughs> is a female-led, uh, uh, female-dominated, uh, male-submissive cuck-type relationship. And to really sell it to people, their manifesto is all going to be about how the Vegas wedding chapel really demonstrates the sham and that is modern patriarchal marriage. And they're taking it back. But after people see this massacre, they're going to be like, what's up with these furry polycule people? Maybe we need to go back to traditional American values and stop with all this commie bullshit. So that's my thing. Polycule slaughterhouse. Well, that was just amazing. You know, sometimes I think that you have not fully escaped Portland. Yeah. yeah. This is, by the way, these are, these, are, these are my notes. This is why it was hard for me to follow. I've just got arrows and I drew a little uh, strange robot creature. That's and a, magical. And a, and a that's man, yeah. so disturbing. You know, yeah. the other thing I was thinking about what's wrong with us here we are you know doing this kind of thing in a christmas show and i think that would be the only thing i would add to that beautiful riff is some hint of christmas theme and then i thought no that was that i think that was better kept away from christmas yeah. and the real christmas message from Lost Explorers might be, those are the kinds of things that you don't want to sort of have hanging from your chimney, you no. know, mantelpiece. You really want to keep those. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. All right. Do you have a tool and a tip for us today? <clears throat> I do. I have a really big tool that I think we're going to end up talking about in the new year. I hope we will. I'm going to call it the Sacknesson Bridge. I know that sounds a little bit pretentious, but 
I don't care. But it's a term that I'm beginning to explore, which applies to relationships between two concepts where even if different words are used, it's very difficult to pry the two concepts apart satisfactorily. Are they really two different concepts? How are they different? They seem to cleave together or vibrate back and forth. There's a dynamic relationship between them upon which their supposedly individual definitions depend. So this oscillation is what I call the Sacknesson Bridge. And here's like an it. example. Okay. Mm -hmm. Take the concepts, psychic states, depressed and lonely. Now, there may well be differences between these two psychic states, perhaps. But nevertheless, it's hard to ignore that if one is depressed, one is likely to feel lonely in some way. And anyone who feels lonely is highly likely to feel depressed. So the bridge can allow for nuanced differences in the, in the two terms, but it also and fundamentally argues for not ignoring dynamic relationships. This is part of my larger theory that our notions of language are so fixed on isolated nouns. Yeah. And we can deal with antonyms and synonyms. And we, I started talking about this in the textbook, how if we start to think about words as fields or perhaps maybe as an atom, you know, with a, with a nucleus and things start spreading out, we very soon have to start looking at relationships because there's something very odd about the, the energy between depressed and lonely. I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place maybe to use those words, one as opposed to the other. But I really wonder if we're not like, overlooking some relationships. Here's another one, slightly more difficult, but to help make the point. What about pain and sadness? <laughs> now, I believe, I would argue that the bridge is still in is oscillating here. I grant anyone listening that the relationship is not the same as depressed and lonely. But here's where it gets really odd. Categories from Gilbert Riles being one of our big concerns. Imagine the category, everything to which the Sacknesson Bridge as introduced applies. Well, that's a pretty big, interesting category. And the question is, is it too big? Does it have coherence? Or is it just mysteriously applicable? Because a lot of the relationships are going to be entirely different between these two related but oscillating words. So I think if, if I follow this through, I think I might find a new way of describing the underlying energy of language.
the associative algorithms that connect things. And I mean, it's a huge task, but I think that once you really become fascinated, not by words, but by the relationships between words, you start to just, and I've, I've had students really get with this, you know, the difference between I'm here to help and I'm here for help. Whoa. You know, and we start to see a much, much more dynamic ecosystem of language. Yeah. And that takes on a whole different thing then of what language is within us. If we're going to use yeah. that expression, that means somehow we are interrelated with a very peculiar ecosystem. Yeah, it's all oscillating contingencies, right? Yes. Um, contingency is a great word. I want to share something from this novel that I was working on. I wrote this last night, and when you said loneliness and depression, I thought, so this is this is from a, a work in progress. It's hard to wrap your head around a mass suicide. One person, sure. Who can't relate to that? If a man gets lonely enough, he kills himself. But a mass suicide suggests a loneliness that friends can't fix. Surround yourself with people, party all night, pray all day, and kill yourselves together. So I thought that was a... <laughs> <laughs> the Christmas cheer keeps rocking. He just keeps rocking Oz. right along. Rocking right along. Ro yeah. Did you know that uh, Brenda, Brenda, is it Brenda Lee? Rocking around the Christmas tree? Yeah. Is that, yeah. She's, yeah. She's number one right now on the Billboard charts. Every year she is. Yeah. Every yeah. year. I love that song. Yeah, you will get a sentimental feeling. That's a beautiful uh, chord change in that song. Mm -hmm, she recorded mm -hmm. that when I think she was 15. No way. Really? She sounds older in the song. Uh, yeah. yeah, she had a very distinctive voice, very odd voice. And uh, I mean, I think there's a kind of androgynous quality to that voice. Yes, yeah, I agree. Kate Newtony, you know? Yeah. Totally. I agree. But I do, I really do like this because it, it has a, this tool has a very as above, so below type effect, because once you understand the oscillating contingencies of language um, and how words are only words when they're in relation to other words, you begin to, I mean, ecosystem is the perfect word for it, because that's also a great way to look at how I live in this apartment and you live in this house and we live in the United States of America and on and on and on and on and on. I mean, it's really the, it's the stuff of existence and what better entry point to that than through uh, words. That's it. That's it. And, you know, it's, it really is uh, another way of saying that, that, that only a magical solution will will work you know it's, yeah. it's a magical journey you know in yeah. our sense of that word magic um so my tip is uh well first my first tip is uh put up christmas lights i did this year and i feel better and i don't mean that necessarily literally although i do but i i mean something bigger and i know that our listeners are are alert enough to know in an emblematic sense the larger thing I'm meaning and I'm not saying follow particularly traditions exactly I'm I hope that's not so limiting I'm just going to let that mm -hmm. resonate 
But my proper tip is a carry a carry on from uh, the tool, and to just be. Graham Greene said he wanted to be a double agent, you know, and I think that being involved in intellectual and artistic or just lost explorers espionage is a really good thing to be doing. And so I do this formally in my my classes, but I often do it with just people I meet and I, you can do it casually like you can get away with this easily. You've got you could easily pull this off. It doesn't take much acting skill really but yours would be i don't think people would even know and i do it too i can get away with this but ask people for their off the top of the head response to various phrases for instance treat them mean keep them keen <laughs> or a happy wife is a happy life and you can get it down to one word. And I tried this out with my students, and I was absolutely blown away by the range of responses to this. Disenchanted. Mm. I mean, that is, a, is, that is an example of an individual uh, totemic iconic word that really does work on its own that, that triggers so many other things because you you try that with another age group and there's all it i mean how do we even begin to think that we can communicate with any degree of agreement that words mean the same thing it's just it's beyond me but so do those do that research and it, it just makes conversations so much more fun. I mean, it's a way to take control when in a in a kind of subtle and, and playful way, when you're being just bored out of your mind with someone. Start a little game, find out a little bit, secret market research. Um, be a mystery shopper, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I uh I love that. I think that that's great. I'm going to definitely adopt that for the classroom. Now, moving into dreams, I've been having very uh, vivid, intense dreams, and almost all of them are sex dreams. And I'm not talking about tender lovemaking dreams. I'm talking about I am a minotaur in a labyrinth, and I have I've caught you, right? And you're not escaping. <laughs> and I'm going oh, to. I'm going. <laughs> God, you're just on a Christmas roll tonight. Yeah, yeah, just on a Christmas roll. Yep, I'm just. I'm in the the holiday spirit gets to me, and I, my dreams just turn into orgies. It's it's just it's crazy. Like I'll wake up and I'll think, holy moly, oh my goodness. Like I have to get my bearings and make sure that I haven't actually done anything wrong. But that's where I've been at lately. So you've been rewriting the Rudolph story and all the reindeer are plenty worried, huh? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. God. yeah they're, they're, they're definitely worried. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, I just had this very uh, unfortunate vision of you as, uh, you know, the Will Ferrell Christmas elf, but mm -hmm. with very lascivious intentions and kind of just no stocking is safe. Mm -hmm. um, no. No, no stockings, no reindeer is safe. Oh, I'm I'm picturing one of those old the old claymation Rudolph, just like with 
big big eyes and you know anyway forget it but uh yeah that's where i've been at where have you been at dream wise well uh, dear. uh well the first thing is i i'd have to say and i think that it's interesting we 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 didn't really discuss the idea of a, of a Christmas themed episode, but I don't know how we would, would do that. And I think we've come up with, with inadvertently and very organically a complete counter Christmas, even though we both have a lot of Christmas cheer and have a lot of, of uh, engagement with. I with love Christmas. It's my favorite holiday, you know, and from yeah. many points of view, um, mm -hmm. but it hasn't really crept into my mind my consciousness so to follow up sort of from our ongoing research into dreams is that i'm i'm starting to get a, an actual clearer picture of what the dream world dream states how those differ from the waking states it's beginning to i mean it's a long way to go mm -hmm. but you charge me with sort of creating a mandala maze map of that experience well i i'm a long way from there but i'm beginning to feel more um like some deep algorithms are working and i think this is if i could go through this this is an example of one theory that dreams are solidly based around or one type of, of dream one stream solidly based around very very dramatic imagery um so the first, I managed to get this into uh, the recorder. A damaged overpass, unfinished freeway, road grading machinery covered in graffiti, shipping containers discarded like shoeboxes, a marshy inlet of car husks and shopping carts. Yet people, perhaps 10 to 20, obliviously fly fishing as if on vacation at some lodge and fly fishing school in Canada. Distressing, ludicrous, and yet serene. And I woke up feeling quite delighted about that image. Next night, a giant bison-headed god in the clouds mm. over a stretch of Badlands Highway. Mm. A long string of boxcars abandoned down a railroad siding. Notice sort of the link, the similar art direction. The huge head is both hideously ugly and unspeakably noble, intimidating, not but not malign. So very, very emotional, powerful. And then I hit this vit, this image, which just cracks me up. It was like a big, big warehouse where uh, the detective is going to get boxes pushed over him in a you know TV show. But it's this it's tier of, of platforms, layer upon layer upon layer, going up maybe 150 feet with maybe 200 people on every level working computers. It's a call center help desk. But the people who appear on screen aren't there to have their problems. They have to help the help desk people. Oh. Otherwise they start to deform and take strange shape. Okay. So with that in mind, 
I think there's something about this sequence that's moving, and I, I just I appreciate everyone's patience with this because I think there is some sort of through line with those as a dream metaphysics, if mm -hmm. you like, between those worlds. Well, the the most important dream was much, much more realistic. I was with my family um, driving to a variation on the Seattle art exhibit that I had in May and June. <clears throat> um, this was in Melbourne, and Melbourne and Seattle are strangely intertwined. They're twin poles for me. The only thing odd is that the streets are flooding, some of them. So, But we managed to get to the gallery. It's much more like what I expected than in Seattle. It's uh, there are more people, but it's a more establishment kind of, of collective, inst you know, institution. Um, but yet there are a lot of young hip people. So it's oddly what I would imagine the art, what I remember the art scene being like pre 2010. Mm -hmm. But here's the kicker. I meet a woman who's a little bit younger than I am, who worked at the first advertising PR agency. Donna is her name. Beautiful, beautiful woman. Uh, she was Australian, but she'd been in, in London and she had a really lovely, affected London accent and a beautiful leather bomber jacket, with which was really good for her perfume. And she, I met I first met her, saw, you know, we made eye contact and there was recognition and I denied it. Peter denying Christ, you know, and I have another key moment in real life that was like that with my stepbrother, which not a many people, not everyone has that, that's, you know, a really important moment that haunts you where you make eye contact close range and you try to deny. But it wasn't that easy to get away because adjacent to the gallery, the reason she was there is that her film production company, which was just blandly called Spectrum, was celebrating their first anniversary. And I suddenly had this great sense of being proud of her because that had been one of her dreams back when she was just a secretary. And the other thing that won me over was that she still looked beautiful. She'd aged really well, but she had aged. There was nothing artificial of her being, you know, the 22-year-old or 23-year-old she was then. No, she just looked really good, you know. Um, and there was a moment of a really, really tender, passionate kiss that was really shared it was spontaneous and it triggered in my mind the distinction between the Hollywood romantic kiss and the very forensic close-up of anal sex in porn, you know, and that oscillating tension that we as individuals and, and as a whole culture can't deal with. And I realized that kiss was like the ideal summer that we all imagine and we've never really had, so we can never forget. And I woke up with this powerful, powerful sense 
that I had broken free of a framework thanks to her and that meeting and breaking through my denial. And I started scribbling, trying to think about her and her beautiful eyes. That's one of the things. That for, but I, I, I found myself scribbling hypertype versus archetype. And I went back to look at, you know, we think of archetypes in this big Jungian sense as being really quite significant and luminous and, and emblematic. But really, archetype is kind of a cheap word. It's the first of its kind. It's the, mo it's the mold from which other copies are made. So it has that pl platonic uh, ideal form thing not the emblematic thing that's unto itself. And that is kind of just, there is no uh, other. And I, my takeout was that, you know, in that moment, in that dream, Donna was not symbolic of other women or other relationships or, or anything. I, I, I encountered a hypertype. Mm emblematic figure that is not reducible to any psychology or mythic explanation you know this is such an important development in this kind of jungian thinking if there's one thing that jung was uh you know all the talk about archetypes does miss the thing in and of itself and leaving room for the thing in and of itself and i love the word hypertype and i think that would just add such a dimension to dream analysis because imagine you're talking to a therapist and you say you tell that dream and the therapist says to you well i think that that just was what it was some people would want their money back but it would be important for an honest analysis of of the truly you know the buffalo head god and things of that nature it would be important for that to also counterbalance it with that's just emblematic that is it that is what it is so i think the whole the kind of therapy that that this could develop into is something that really needs to evolve and develop over time and it would need to really be a relation an oscillating relationship between therapist and and patient but it does give me a lot of hope and encouragement that that the active pursuit of not just dream record which i've done for a long time but real engagement beyond analysis that there has to be another way of approaching this, a kind of spiral lost explorers way. And in contrast to that sort of beautiful sort of uh, D minor uh, revelation coming out of Donna, I also wrote down two things that I feel pretty confident are not appearing in dreams as frequently or with the depth of importance as mm. we might expect money yep and 
entertainment, movies and TV. And I think, I mean, I'm not saying I never have dreams and I'm sure you, you know, everyone does at some point, but not on the level that you might predict. And I think that instantly gives us a clue to the power of dreams that we are somehow more active, less vicarious, less passive, that we are more immersed. And I think that is a, a beginning point for some real practical development in this idea to, to blow this open because it's obviously an endless task, but I wonder about that. Um, I feel more engaged with being able to, to navigate the dream world now. That's awesome. That's great. So to end this Christmas episode, I know that we've oscillated between Christmas spirit and <laughs> gore. But you have a song that we are going to play right at the end of this episode. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Chris, take us out. Okay. Thank you, everyone. This piece is uh, seven minutes and 30 seconds long. It's an instrumental piece. It's one of my uh, more ambitious ensemble works to date. Some improvised, self-made instruments, several conventional instruments, uh, a small band of co-conspirators. But the theme is very Lost Explorers, ties in with our last year's imaginative challenge. The three wise men who only appear very elliptically in the, in the book of Matthew. Uh, and yet they've fascinated people down the years. Magicians, the three magi, magical kings from the East, Zoroasterism, the Persian Empire, all sorts of interesting historic and mythic and legendary levels. But it strikes me that they really went on an adventure and took a risk. And I think we need to bring some risk back into not only the Christmas story, but Appreciation of risk at large. That's going to be one of my personal themes for the new year. They went on an adventure. Think of it. Three magical kings loaded with very special treasure out into the wilderness. Wild, savage beasts, thieves, marauders. There's some crazy stuff they had to deal with. And of course, yes, they were following a star. We need to follow stars. That is emblematic of all human knowledge. It's the beginning of Western science. It's the beginning of knowledge around the world. One of my anthropologist friends says, people around the world either follow stars or they pay really great attention to ants because they can't see the stars. So there's a lot going on here. I hope people enjoy it. Um, but you know, I think after David's wonderful mayhem and gore and sex fantasies, that level of Christmas will only be supported by what is kind of a little bit blockbustery theme music. Um, at least it doesn't sound like, you know, following yonder story. That always struck me as kind of like a drinking song. This is an adventure song. And we wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.
Thank you.